Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Uh, we started this discussion of verses 12 to 14 which paint for us a picture of radical transformation. We looked at verse 12 in our last episode, and we noted there that we need to consider the power of the gospel. And when we consider the power of the gospel, we see, note, first of all, its source. The source of the power of the gospel is that it comes from God. The power for true true gospel ministry comes from God. That's verse 12. Uh, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And so we plumbed the depths of that in verse 12. And now we want to move on and not just talk about the source of the power of the gospel, but also its mercy and its grace. So we want to look and note this in verse 13, that the power of God is displayed in mercy. The power of God and the power of the gospel is displayed in mercy. Here's what Paul says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. All right, the power of God is displayed in mercy. And what we note as we begin to dig into this here is that, first of all, God's power reaches the most debased. We note the former way of the life of an unbeliever. Paul appeals to this, and maybe you've heard of a a radio program that used to air a lot, it still does on some channels, uh, called Unshackled. I believe uh, it came out of Pacific Garden Mission. It wasn't directly affiliated with uh, the Moody Bible Institute, but very nearby that in Chicago, Illinois, there was a Pacific Garden Mission, and from that were these stories of salvation and unshackled. And you hear the the intro with that that old, uh, I think Hammond organ there, or Wurlitzer, or whatever it is. And you know, you you've probably heard that tune, and if you've ever heard it, you you can hear it in your head right now, just because I referenced it. And they talk about that: if the sun shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That's what it is, unshackled. And they're stories of. God's salvation. And typically the way those stories would play out is, you know, you have this story of what a person's life was like before Christ and then how they heard the gospel and the transformation to Christ. And we talked about this in the previous episode because the power of the personal testimony should never be underestimated. And that's something that we just can't to make or make too little of is, you know, that's what's going on. And Paul says here, and he's reiterating to Timothy, does Timothy need to hear this? Well, not necessarily, but he needs to be reminded that there is great power in that and that as they go about gospel ministry, uh, this is one of the ways to do that. After all, this is a letter that talks about how the church should be. And uh, it's not just for Timothy's sake, but we benefit from it because we, we see in it the offices of the church. We sh- see how uh, the elder should 
interact with the younger, the men and the women and so forth. And we get a picture into that and we see the role of the church and what the church is commanded to do in corporate worship when we get to chapter two, all of those things. And so part of this, it's not just for Timothy's sake, it's for the sake of the church. Has the church been commissioned with anything? Well, yes. I mean, we've received the great commission. And so we go in all the world and we proclaim the gospel and people get really shy about that and say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, here's a great way to do it instead of just memorizing the Romans road, which by the way, I think you should. So you you should spend time and dwell on these verses and hide them in your heart. But once you have, you know, hidden a few of those things away, rather than trying to memorize an exact speech or anything like that, the best way to tell somebody about salvation is say, hey, let me tell you about what my life used to be like. Let me tell you what I was like beforehand and the picture of my life. And then let me tell you how God orchestrated it for me to hear his word, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And when I heard the gospel, he changed me. He saved me by his glorious grace. And so uh, we have to understand that, that uh, it is a very powerful thing. Well, when Paul goes back, you know, he's not trying to cover up his former way of life. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. And he says that formerly, that's talking about his past. It's not present. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And of course, opponent of what? Opponent of the gospel, opponent of Christ Jesus, a persecutor of those who did follow him, a blasphemer of the name, that is to speak untrue things. So let's work through these, okay? Uh, In his former life as an unbeliever, he says, first of all, he was a blasphemer. What does it mean to blaspheme? Well, it means to defame. It means to denigrate or demean. It means that he denied Christ and forced others to follow his example. Now, we get this today, right? Uh, At the time that I'm recording this, Israel is engaged in another war. In my lifetime, uh, they have been engaged in a lot of military campaigns. In fact, I think since 1948 and their creation, I think Israel has been at war or been facing some kind of war more than they've ever been at peace uh, during that time. So it's a long time for them to be at war. Well, they're engaged in a new war, a very violent war. It started on October 7th in 2023, and they are still engaged in that and probably will be when you hear this. And uh, and it looks like there's no end in sight for that, not for quite a, a while. The reason I bring them up is because when we're looking at this idea to blaspheme, to defame, or to denigrate or demean, this is with regards to Christ, right? He names Christ in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And to deny Christ and to tell others to follow your example in denying him is precisely what the Jewish people are doing today. They do not recognize that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah that they long have been looking for. And they still will say today, unless they are saved, which most aren't, that Jesus is not the Messiah and that they're still looking for God's Messiah. Well, the fact is, is he is God's Messiah. And we have ample evidence of that all throughout the scripture. And we just look at what the scriptures say the Messiah will be like, and we match them up. It only is ever can ever match one person. It can't be a, a double match, right? 
Uh, it's only ever going to match up to Jesus Christ. But to defame him, to bring him down and to say he's less than what he was and is, to denigrate him, to demean him, uh, to deny Christ as the Messiah, the chosen of God, God's anointed one, and then to force others to do the same means you are a blasphemer, which is really interesting. And I, I know that I'm using this by example, but the example is pertinent because Paul elsewhere says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He actually was a devout Jew and more than the normal person. He had gone on uh, to rabbinic school. He had memorized much more of the Old Testament than most Jews would have, even though Jews would have memorized a significant portion of the Pentateuch at least. And he, he had a lot of that scripture under his belt and had gone to, you know, theological school, right? Fair, the, the school of the Pharisees and the, and the rabbinic schools. So he, he elsewhere calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Well, what does he do when he first comes across people who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, saying that he is the chosen of God and God's anointed one? He persecutes them. He denies that Christ is that person, uh, that Christ is the Messiah. He denies that. Uh, he puts these people to death. He is responsible for the death of Stephen, uh, the first recorded martyr in the New Testament. And he really hoped by doing that, that he would get people to not only deny Christ, but to join him in his denial of Christ. In fact, he says so in Acts 26, verse 11. Listen to what's recorded here in the words of Paul. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. By the way, I should make it known that this is Paul giving his testimony to Agrippa. And you go back and read that starting in verse 1. And he talks about it in more detail, not just that, but go back to verse 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. All the things that we just talked about. Now I stand here on trial, okay? But listen, he goes on. He said, I myself, verse 9 of Acts 26, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So there it is in its context. So to blaspheme means to try and get somebody to deny Christ, but personally it means that you yourself are going to deny Christ or say something that is contrary to sound doctrine regarding the person of Christ. But then he goes on in verse 13. Not only was he formally a blasphemer, but he was also formally a persecutor. And he persecuted those. And we saw a little bit of that uh, in the passage that we just read in a broader setting. I think it was Acts 26, verse 10. Uh, but we're reminded of this. Uh, Jesus said this in John 16, 2, whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Surely Paul thought he was doing a service to God when he presided over the deaths of the saints. 
And we have him here uh, in the early part of Acts chapter 8, approving and standing over the death of Stephen at his execution, his martyrdom. Right, Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7, and then he is killed for that. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, we read this, And Saul, that is Paul, approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 8 But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You talk about persecution. Paul knows full well the things that he did, and he's not trying to cover it up. He says, this is who I was, this despicable thing. I spoke ill of Christ. I I spoke untruth about him. I dragged his name through the mud. I tried to get other people to do it. When they wouldn't do that with me, I actually persecuted them. I presided over their death. I put them in prison. It's incredible the things that he did. What's it going to take? This is where our mind should be going to change somebody like that. What's it going to take to get them off of that trajectory onto a new path? What's it going to take to remove them from the broad path that leads to destruction? Matthew chapter 7 and onto the narrow path that leads to life. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. The power of God is displayed in his mercy. His mercy can reach us at our most debased point in life and change us and transform us. So he's a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul says this regarding his own resume as to a law As to the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, in his eyes anyway, blameless. Okay? Then he also says this, an insolent opponent. Insolent opponent. What this really does is sum up the above two points, that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor. To do both of those things, what is the sum total of that? That means you are an insolent opponent of the gospel. The word sounds like our English word hubris, which means prideful. Uh, But the Greek carries the idea of physical violence, uh, pride that leads to violence. Okay, and maybe that kind of helps put it in perspective. He's so puffed up that he's willing to fight somebody over it. That's really the type of hubris that's on display here. The natural state of man who is spiritually dead is enmity with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. True power is seen not in lifting mythical weights, like can God lift up the world, but true power is seen in radically transforming spiritually dead people who are active enemies into agents and catalysts for the gospel. So if he was all these things that sum up in this idea of being an insolent opponent, someone who is willing to do physical battle against people out of their own dead spiritual pride, what is it that can change them? Well, the power of the gospel is seen in mercy that reaches down when somebody like that surely deserves death. If you put to death another man, do you deserve death according to what the scriptures say? Well, yes, you do. Paul presided over Stephen's death. Did he deserve death for that? Well, technically he did. But the fact that he didn't receive that death is 
an act of mercy. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay. But I have received mercy. Okay. That's incredible. We see here then not only God's power reaches the most debased, but God's mercy spares the debased. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. We are not in a neutral state. John the Baptist said it best in John 3, 36. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, we deserve God's wrath. That's what we deserve. And when we get anything less than God's wrath, that is mercy. And it is grace. It's both. Right? Grace is the gifting of something that we don't deserve. Mercy is the withholding of that which we do deserve. If we deserve his wrath, which we do, the fact that we're not getting it is, by definition, an act of mercy. The reception of mercy can only be understood in the context of what is rightfully due. The only hope for those who are enemies is that they are doing it in ignorance and unbelief. That's not a justification, and it's not permission. But Paul says that he did not understand, and he had to have his eyes opened. He, of all people, understands that salvation is a total work of God. He couldn't do it until God literally stopped him, and he went blind, and he had to have his eyes opened to the truth of the gospel. And that is still true to this day. So we note with Paul that God's mercy spares the debased. And he says this, that the reason he was spared was because he had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Now, this is interesting here because it seems to speak to those who act knowingly in this way, but ignorantly. Uh, I say knowingly and ignorant, that's a contradiction, but he, he had done those things because he did not know the gospel. So there, there's the ignorance there is the unbelief in Christ. And until he did that, if you believe in Christ and you're doing these things, uh, that's a different discussion. You're not going to be spared in that. Okay. And James speaks to this. He said, for those who know the right thing to do and don't do it to them, it is sin. Uh, James four seventeen. We have to understand that, that mercy can only be understood in the context of what is rightfully due. Uh, so because of the things that he had done and what it was bringing on his life, he received mercy. Had he been doing those things with the full awareness of who Christ was, acknowledging that and doing it to spite the name of Christ, even though he acknowledged that, uh, then he probably, we wouldn't be reading his work today, uh, right? Because then th that's a different discussion to have. But God's mercy spares the debate. So it doesn't just apply to Paul. That same principle is true uh, to this day, uh, that every time a person is saved, it is because of God's mercy, sparing the debased, sparing those who deserve his wrath. And I stand here today because of God's mercy. All right. And then one last consideration with regard to the power of the gospel, uh, we see not only the source of the power and we see the power displayed in mercy, but we also see the power of God is gifted by grace. Uh, not only does he say he received mercy in verse 13, but verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
So at the same time that he was not receiving what was due to him, that's mercy, the withholding of that which was due, then God overflowed him with faith and love. And the thing that does that, that overflows us, is this thing called grace. Because grace, as we've all probably heard, is undeserved merit. That's what it is. We're receiving something for which we did nothing uh, to merit the reception of that. We don't earn a gift. It is given to us. Grace is undeserved. And so it is the sheer act of God's love, his goodwill, his grace that we receive anything. But when he pours out a good gift, how does it come? It overflows us. In other words, what we're saying here with this type of language is that it abounded exceedingly. This is a royal gift. We don't just get a little tiny piece of grace, a little slice of grace. We get so much more, it just completely overflows us. And that's what he's saying. And he understands that this is personal as well. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. We don't just speak in abstracts to apply to other people. It has to be personally realized. If we have been the recipient of God's mercy and grace, we will have experienced the overflowing of faith and love by the grace of God. That's what Paul experienced. It overflowed him personally. This one who was a former enemy, who had blasphemed the name, who had persecuted the church, who was an insolent opponent, uh, haughty, prideful, to, to the point of violence against God, has now been transformed. Spared wrath and given grace to serve, uh, with faith given to Paul, with love given to Paul. That's what he's saying. He was overflowed with faith, overflowed with love. God gave him the faith to believe. And that shows us, by the way, that when we do proclaim the gospel and we proclaim it accurately and we tell people and admonish them that they need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, we go back to that word believe. That is a faith word. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to believe that he is the anointed, the chosen of God. Okay, God is the one who gives us the ability to believe. We may say, well, I chose to believe. I, I believed in him. Well, you did, but you believed because God gave that to you. Okay, he says here that the grace of our Lord overflowed me overflowed for me. So he's not the one who's causing that. It is the grace of our Lord. Where is that source from? The Lord is the one who sends out that grace. And the product of that grace, this gift that overwhelms Paul is what? First seen in faith. Paul never would have been able to believe. If anybody could have believed by their own power, it would have been Paul a Pharisee of Pharisees, a student of the scriptures who sits at the feet of Gamaliel. All the things that we know about Paul, if anyone could have mustered that of their own strength, it would have been him, but he couldn't. So we have to look at this very carefully and recognize that he didn't supply his own faith. Faith is a product of the grace of our Lord. Our Lord, when he saves us, when Christ saves us and gives us that, that wonderful salvation, he gives us in this overflowing way. In, in other words, abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, the first thing he gives us is faith to believe. Then what else does he give us? Love, faith and love. 
What's the love for? The love is for Christ. The ability to see what Christ has done for us, the ability to see our own wretchedness and sinfulness, and to see that Christ came, and though he didn't deserve the wrath of God, he took it on his body for us. That's love. That causes us not to only see that Jesus loved us, but we love him when we recognize that gift. How incredible is that? And then we begin to love others. Well, if God loves me and I'm an image bearer and I'm a sinful wretch and I deserve his wrath and he spared me from that, uh, you know, Jesus work on the cross applies to other people. Wow. I need to go and tell them I love, I can now love other people. I can love people who I was formerly enemies with. I can pray for those who persecute me. I can do that. And this is the grace of God. It overflows us with faith. It overflows us with love. It gives us the ability to love Jesus first and foremost. It gives us the ability to love the unlovely. It gives us the ability to love properly the people who are part of the household of faith, the church of God. It's incredible. Okay. And that's what he's saying. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we have faith and we have love, it is the same faith and love that we see demonstrated by Jesus. Does Jesus demonstrate faith? Well, Jesus was with the Father from the beginning, but while he's on earth, he knows the reality of that and he lives by that which is unseen, which is the definition of faith, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus is living by things that he has seen while he's not seeing them on earth and asking us to do the same thing. And he gives us that ability. Uh, Faith and love are seen fully in Christ. They are sourced in Christ. He's the one who gives them. He's the one who lived them. And we can do that. The power of God is gifted by grace and it's seen in this radical transformation. So let me encourage you Never underestimate the power of the personal testimony. And when we think through it in the way that Paul does in these short verses, we see how powerful it was not only in his life, but how powerfully it affected other people as he goes on these missionary journeys and establishes churches and now is writing to the churches. He is a changed man. The gospel changes lives. And that is a part of our message. So we looked at today the power of God displayed in mercy and the power of God gifted by grace. That's all we have time for. Uh, We will pick up the text again in our next episode starting in verse 15. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.